It is the 100th commemorative episode of the Terry's Talking Podcast. David Campbell, your host here, and I am joined, as I am for the other 99 episodes, by Mr. Terry Pluto, ordering columnist from the Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. Terry, congratulations. I never thought we'd make it this far. How do we know, though, this is not artificial <laughs> intelligence just imitating us? Ooh, it could be. We'll have to go back and check that. But yes, uh, the, the, yeah. evil, the evil bots, by the way. So We're uh, like a, uh, an NFL team. We just try to go 1-0 every week, right? And then we got, <laughs> I like we got that one. To, and Terry, I wanted to play you an accordion song today to commemorate our 100th anniversary, but I stink. <laughs> so I don't, I don't want to subject our, our, our pod audience has been growing. And if we put that into the show, like it's going to decline by half. So yes. And if you keep talking about an accordion, it will decline. <laughs> well, you won't make it to 101. Frankie Yankovic will forever be the uh, yeah. Hulk accordion king of Cleveland. He will get no, yeah, I, no threat from me. I grew me. up in a home in Cleveland and some of the older ones where my father, I believe it was Sunday mornings, Polka Varieties was a big show that ah. he would watch, you know. So he would have appreciated your attempt on the accordion. I played many polkas when I was a kid. Uh, Mr. Pedraza was my teacher, and he was Polish, and we learned a lot of great polkas, so a lot of uh, fond memories there. But anyway, nobody wants to hear about that. No, that you don't. have been driving all over Northeast Ohio, Terry, going to Cavs Media Day, and you were at the Guardians season-ending press mm-hmm. conferences today. So we'll get into all that, but uh, let, let's start with the Browns. There's a lot going on with the Browns as they go into their bye week. Um, and also, toward the end of the podcast, we have asked fans for – since it's our hundredth episode, we're like, hey, tell us where you live, why you're a Cleveland fan, and you were you were kind of asking fans to send in why they're fans and why they've stuck with Cleveland teams, and we got, I think we've got dozens of responses. We'll get to um, as many as we can today, and hopefully we can just keep rolling them out. But uh, the Browns, Terry, you wrote a column this morning about this whole Watson injury. Should he have played? Should he have not played? And it, why don't we get into that right off the bat, just to put that behind us and and move on but what did you think of that whole episode well the main thing is i wanted to get some clarification on how the decision came down for him not to play because mary Kay and i both had uh sources on friday and saturday different sources i may add uh high up confirming that they expected him to play even though it turned out he hardly threw at all. And then Sunday morning, he goes out, and uh, I I did not see it, but I think Mary Kay did, and I also saw a tape of some others from the press box. He's on the field, and he's just throwing a pass to somebody about fi- stationary, about 15 yards away. I think they threw five or eight passes and a couple more. Andrew Berry's out there, the GM, and, and uh, Kevin Stefanski, and the trainers. And they bag it, walk off the field, and that's it. Okay. Now, then Stefanski began to talk about it after the game. And this is where everything goes sideways. How, what did you hear Stefanski saying when we boil it down? So when you look at the post-game press conference and then the one on Monday, he was talking about he didn't have his faculties and and yeah, what is he, that? he knows he knows his body and he couldn't and he decided he couldn't go and it was so weird. Like I don't want to get all medical. There's a lot we don't know medically and everything in terms of what the injury is and how how bad it is. But all I kept thinking about was Baker Mayfield. Yeah. Like like if you. If you are an offensive lineman and you tell your offensive line coach, you know, I think I can go or I think I can't go, like the coach is going to say, okay, 
you, you can probably block or you can't block, but like a quarterback, if you watch and see him throw and you see that he can't throw and everything Kevin Stefanski says is we this and we that, and we have to work together. But like, this was like, this was Deshaun's decision. That's, like he decided he, he couldn't up. play. Yeah. And, and you wrote in your column, like all you have to say is like, we, we, we worked out, we watched him work out and we decided he couldn't go. No, like, I mean, it, that's all it needed to be. Right. It, it was bagged so quickly. Because I got it from top sources, and in fact, one of them they were telling me. I said, "Well, your your coach basically just said your quarterback didn't want to play against Baltimore." I mean, that's how it came down. If things are structurally sound, and then I then I did actually get the NFL definition of structurally sound. It's a little different than what we think. That means there's no broken bones, no torn ligaments. Okay, that's pretty much it. For example. You could have a hamstring injury, and they probably say it's structurally sound. You know, it's just pulled. You right. Could, you could sprain an ankle, and they could still say it's structurally sound, but you can't play. He has a very bad, I believe it's a bone bruise. They say called it a shoulder contusion. But for him to barely be able to throw the ball 15 yards, uh, it's a bone bruise. So um, I'm talking to this top source, and then finally he says, well, I mean, all you had to do was watch him throw. You could see, we, we could see right away. I mean, he could hardly throw the ball or whatever. I said, that's all you guys had to say. That's and, it. Terry, we, like, not to get on the Case Keenum horse and saddle him up again, but, like, we we went through an entire season of this right. a couple of years ago where we saw the Browns, like, put a guy out there who shouldn't have been playing. Yeah, it's like, what and, were they watching? Like, why does the quarterback get to decide? Yeah, if he and plays, I, it was really odd to me. And, and in this case, I think it was Deshaun said, "I can't go." They're looking at this and they're going, "Yeah, that's not going to work." And I think that was really collaborative. But Stefanski made just didn't say it that way. And it's like the only time he didn't use the we the word "we" in any of his press conferences, yeah. like that I can remember. It's like, well, he didn't think he could go. Yeah, You're right. It, it was strange on a where, number of where levels. He should have said, "Yeah." All he had to say is, um. We watched them. It didn't look good. We couldn't do it. Period. And then, all right, so then I said, and, and I think most people listening to this and readers know I was not a fan of the Watson trade. I actually, he's certainly not my favorite type of quarterback. You know, you sit by me at some of the games, you know, that with four pieces of hair I have left, I usually pull two of them out watching him scramble around all over the place. That said, I thought this was not treating him correctly because I believe since the opening day of 2018, he's been eligible to play in 54 games. He has played in 53 until this. Then you go back into his college career. He played out a whole game out of torn ACL, uh, a punctured lung in the NFL. Like him or not, the guy plays. So and he's fact, tough. And he's he's tough. tough. He takes real hits. And, I mean, that's part of my problem with them is like, don't take so many hits, you know, get out of bounds, that stuff. So I, and I just, you know, the Browns have to be careful here. They brought him in. They made the mega deal. That led to all the controversy. And then they have to be careful that, um, and how you are basically talking about him to your fan base who right now, Watson has almost zero goodwill in the bank with them. Now, it could change by the end of the year, but I would argue in his nine games he's played, how many good ones? 
good. Two? Yeah, right? two, two's grading on a curve. At least one. He had a very good half at Washington, and I thought he was pretty good against Cincinnati. So let's give him two and a half on a nine. But there's some real clunkers in there and all that. So given all that, you know, this – and then you're – the implication that, like, he he bagged it, it, it just it struck me as wrong. And Especially so in Cleveland, get, like, yeah. a, you know, blue-collar fans. Yeah. It's like they want people to grit, be gritty, and it, it yeah. just – it was an unnecessary. So what you're saying is it was an unnecessary yeah. shot that he had to take off the field, so to speak, where people are now questioning his toughness when that shouldn't even have been an issue. Is what you're yeah, saying? Yeah. Basically, instead of getting the structural things or whatever, he couldn't throw the ball 15 yards with any zip on it at all. That's what I was told, and that's what it looks like on that tape on the sidelines. And that's all you need to know. I mean, I guess you could say you should have went out there on one arm and hand the ball off. I'm not going to go down that way. Um, so, and I do, Terry, I just think quarterback is a different thing where it's yeah. like you can't play like you can't yeah. play today. And if it's a collaborative, it shouldn't be the quarterback deciding if he can play. I, like, I th- from what I could tell, actually, it was collaborative, but the, he laid it on Watson. Yeah, that's probably the best way to put it. Yeah, because we didn't hear the discussions. Yeah, so, we didn't. But yeah. again, this is my stuff there because they were kind of frustrated with me. Questioning and how they. um handle this and then I, then they gave me and they said well you know get how we throw 15 yards you know all this i said well you guys just should have said that that's all oh, all right well this too will okay, pass enough of all that. <laughs> yeah it will uh, and so we move on to that now another point on this i keep hearing now you could you could debate this choice too the browns don't have an experienced backup quarterback true or false that's true it's false but they didn't play him they didn't play him. He's they the backup to the backup. They have one, yes. Uh, uh, was, is it P.J. Walker or T.J. Walker? I always get it. Uh, P.J., right? P.J. PJ Walker. Yeah. Started five games for Carolina last year. He was 2-3, and three, completed 59% of his passes, three touchdowns, three interceptions. Not saying he's great. But if I had an emergency start against Baltimore, do I put DTR out there in his first NFL start? Or do I go with the older guy? Well, here's the thing, Terry. And I've been talking to my son and my wife about this because oh, it's, it's been an interesting book, yeah. discussion. So they basically got rid of Josh Dobbs because yes. they have so much faith in DTR. And they have faith in DTR because of what they've seen on film in college at UCLA, what they've seen in training camp, what they've seen right. during the preseason, what they've seen in practice. This is a guy who has never played in an NFL regular season game, mm-hmm. ever. And you put him out there with the same game plan as you were going to have Deshaun Watson run. That's, they deny and that, but it sure looks like it. That's what I've been hearing. I think Stefanski said that on Monday, that it was the same game plan, that they didn't yeah. change it. And so, like, yes, it, it's like they, they kind of got um, stuck by their own pride a little bit. Like mm-hmm. we love this guy. We think he's really going to be something. And because he's the same style as Deshaun Watson, he should be able to do all the same plays as Deshaun Watson. But like he's going against Patrick queen and Roquan Smith and Hamilton. And like, 
It's and like, on top of this that, is, this is a good defense, and these guys don't mess around, and you can't scramble against uh, the Ravens' first team defense and get yards the way you can against some third stringers from whatever team during the preseason. It mm-hmm. is a different game, and I thought, and I thought they should have they should have changed things and made it a little bit easier for him to yeah. slide in. What did you think? Um, well, a couple of things. Also, um, they believe when they made the Watson deal, I think they had their eye on Walker that they could get him. So they would have a guy. You know, he kind of went into the abyss where he's not discussed because Watson was playing DTR as the backup. Um, and now perhaps that changes, by the way, uh, going forward. So what I wanted to say is they did actually have an experienced backup who actually had played more games than Joshua Dobbs in the NFL. Um so until this year, uh, so they didn't play him. So that was that. Then, as you mentioned, the game plan, which was ba- uh, baffling. And I, I want to met Jimmy Watkins. Where you mentioned to me uh, when we were at the game that Jimmy was doing this thing on play calling, and I kind of sort of dismissed it. You know, I'm like, it was such a disaster, whatever. Well, then I looked at the play sheet afterwards when I was doing my my scribbles for the next day, and I saw there was two passes, and then I believe I'm mean, two runs, I believe, then seven consecutive passes, and I went. Yeah, that's awful. And so then you get into the flea flicker and all that. It was it was really I mean, they weren't gonna win this game with PJ Walker, Joshua Dobbs, or whoever. They weren't. No, there's no Not, doubt about because, it. Because the the Schwartz defense that we all love, uh, they took a day off. Juan Thornhill said as much and some others. But you could have certainly given it a better chance. And then on top of it, um, well, I'm going to hold the Nick Chubb thought till I, till I finish this and see what you think. So they, they had all these stupid plays that he wasn't really ready to run. And they, they disrespected the Baltimore defensive coordinator, Mike McDonald, who I had a top NFL executive tell me he believes that he could be the next, you know, kind of coordinator to get a head coaching job. And he told me when I was getting the scouting report, I go to him for one of the it's a name everybody you would know. Everybody in the NFL would know. Uh, okay, you're playing the Browns this week. Browns are playing. You're you're with the Browns, and you're you know that kind of thing. You're facing them. He goes, oh boy, they better do their homework. McDonald does as good a job at disguising his blitzes and bluffing, and he's got those veteran guys like you mentioned. He says he is tough to play against. And he goes, if you notice, how did Indiana beat him? Indianapolis, they kicked field goals like from, you know, 50-some yards away. That's what it took to beat them. So then you throw that and DTR with the flea flickers and, I don't know, whatever Elijah Moore was doing. And uh. Yeah, it was – you're right, Terry. They weren't going to win that game. Um, but, but, but you talk about McDonald. They, he goes to Michigan and beats Ohio State and helps yeah. Jim Harbaugh beat Ohio State and get that thing back to where Michigan wants it. And then he goes back to Boulder. Now he's, tar- he's tormenting the Browns. Yeah. Um, he's, and it's he's, like, he, I'm just, I just kept hearing, I, I just knew it, the name. I didn't really know much about him, but I respect this guy. And everything he said was absolutely correct, you know? And, so and then you, on the offensive side of the ball, you got Todd Munkin, yeah. who, who was the offensive coordinator at Georgia the last two years, national championship back to back was here with the Browns. I mean, that guy has been around forever and is he's as good as they come. Like, they have two great, great coordinators yeah, on that and, team. Yeah, and Harbaugh, you know, he's like one of those guys. He's like Tomlin. They're just there every year. 
A pain in the butt to play. Now, I, I think this is actually an underplayed story. Uh, not just Nick Chubb being out, but the real story of his injury. That it's not one, but two surgeries. I cannot recall the last time a prominent NFL player needed two knee surgeries within you know three months or whatever it's going to be. Yeah, that's not good. No, because we, the the report that came out, I think, from Adam Schefter a week and a half ago, was that it was only the MCL, and Correct. then when they went in, they found the ACL, and they're going to have to do that one. Um, it was funny so that, though. That's when worse I checked, than what the report when was. I, when I checked on that with one of my sources, the Schefter thing, and the guy said, "I just wouldn't go heavy with this." Um, he said that could be best case, but he said you got to remember that knee was shattered one other time. And until they get in there, they really don't know. And he said, I'll just tell you, the Browns are very, very concerned about that. So, had they had now, Joshua Dobbs with Nick Chubb with a grinded-out game plan, if the defense showed up, you could pull that off. There's like three ifs in there. But Chubb was missing. Here's the problem now with the running game struggling, is when you do a play fake to Kareem Hunt or somebody, it's not being respected by the defense. You're right, Terry. And it all plays off of each other, right? Like I was watching the first half again today. I was just watching the defensive snaps. Boy, you wanted uh, to and, suffer. <laughs> no, what I was curious about is are the, are the Browns playing more man or zone okay. against Lamar Jackson? Because if you play zone, you keep him in front of you. Mm-hmm. And you, there's, he doesn't have to break one tackle and go for 50 yards if he decides to run. But the Browns played man 11 times in the first half on Sunday, and they played zone eight times from what I could figure out, which I thought was interesting. I think they'd like to play more man, but you can't. And they tackled so badly that when they did play man, they gave a bunch of yeah. plays because they missed a bunch of stuff. But anyway, what I was getting at is like because they couldn't run the ball, they couldn't shorten the game for their rookie yeah. quarterback, which meant the defense was out there a long time, which means meant the defense gave up a ton of big plays, missed some tackles they probably wouldn't miss other weeks. It was hot. Like everything was just like loaded up against the Browns to, to lose that game. And they did. There just was not a, a rookie quarterback needs a whole raft of things around him to help him get down the river. Right. And yeah. they did not have that set up on, on Sunday. Some days there's just nothing you can do. And, um, and by the way, out, I am, so. I am very concerned about Chubb also, you know, his long-term future, because, you know, now they're saying they got to go back in a couple months and fix the ACL which generally is the harder of the two ligaments to fix, MCL, ACL. Then on top of it, as uh, my wife pointed out, and her dad was a doctor, and she worked in the hospital, dear Roberta, who's always right about these, she said, don't forget the scar tissue issue. So there was scar tissue from the 2016 reconstructed knee thing they did, remember, same knee. So they went in this time, they had to have run into some scar tissue. And, of course, you do the the MCL and and cartilage, all that junk. And now you're going to go back again. So this, well, you notice how vague it is. Well, sometimes in 2024, I mean, that's a who knows. Now, we factor in who Nick Chubb is. By the way, this is a guy I've never received a negative email, a negative comment, a negative anything about from, I mean, he is the, if you want the quintessential Cleveland Brown, who you wanted to be is Nick Chubb, um, along with being the best running back I've seen in Cleveland since, and I did see Leroy Kelly uh, since uh, Jim, since Jim Brown. That's why I mentioned that. 
And so, anyway, we'll see how that plays out. He could come back, but boy, oh boy, what a what a what a blow that is. And I think it puts tremendous. Now, all right, you're Barry and Stefanski. You got the bye week. What are you thinking about your running game, David? I think you need to keep your eyes open for a running back. I think there's a lot of them out there that you could get that could give you some good carries, but they have to get this offensive line up to grade. Like these, I pulled the stats. I was going to bring it up later, but like uh, of the guys who played most of this, like 90% of the snaps, Dewan Jones was your top rated PFF lineman this week. Mm. Like, and in his fourth game and like, there's guys who are not run blocking well, and whoever the running back is, there were not a lot of lanes there mm-hmm. the other day. So they got to fix that. I think that it's got to be a two-part and, thing. Yes, find a running back, but also they got to block better. So what's going on with Petonio and, and Teller? I don't know. I mean, that's a tough front to block. I get it. Um, but this, this Browns offensive line is supposed to be good. And I think they're having some discussions about, like, listen, we got to get it going. Um, but I had two questions for you, Terry, com- coming out of all this. Do you think the Ravens are going to win the division? Yes. And then my second question, this one's a little bit more elaborate, but given what you saw from DTR on Sunday, do you think the Browns will run fewer quarterback runs for Deshaun Watson when he comes back after the bye? You know what I mean? Not exposing him so much to these these hits like he took against Tennessee on design runs. I would. I don't know what they're going to do. And then on top of it, you have to have a very serious talk with Deshaun and say – did you watch that game? That's who we are without you. And this is not faulting anybody. You need to slide. You need to go out about. You can gain a ton of yards and still not get your shoulder knocked in. We, do, we don't need any concussions. You did have an ACL in your rookie year at Houston. You know, this investment is made not for you to be a hero. It's investment made for you to be a long-term quarterback. That's how you show you're tough, by playing That's, the rest of the games. Yeah. And then that way, you don't – because you're going to get banged up around anyway. So – and a lot of times when he's, like, scored on the goal line, if you notice, he didn't even break any tackles. He dropped back, and maybe it's a it's a draw, and it, it just opened up. Um, so – because he's only running five or eight yards. He's not trying to run 20. Uh, so I'm I'm with you on that. They should. I mean, right now, I don't know what they're going to do. I, I may, I maybe I'm just overly discouraged because of the way they handled when I dug into the Watson thing and the miscommunications. And as you mentioned, the the game plan certainly looked like a Watson game plan. Yeah, and when they come back, um, I think you're right, Terry. I think they might want to change some of that stuff. And man, it's uh, if if he gets hurt, hey, this is not to. DTR is a rookie, and he was playing his first game, and uh, it didn't go great. And he and he handled himself wonderfully in the post game press conference, like yeah. in terms of what he said and what he how he thought he played. Like he's he's got a bright future. It's all going to be good for him. Uh, he just he's going to need some help next time. I, think I mean, other than that. facing maybe San Francisco, who else would have been worse to face? I mean, you could argue he, Pittsburgh. Nobody. But I don't, yeah, I don't maybe. Maybe, uh, but. I just I just think it was a nightmare setup, and and on top of it, even though he took the um, snaps and all that during the week for the, at least the passing plays, I was told in practice, um, there was this overly optimistic assumption that Deshaun was going to play, and I think that was in everybody's heads. So there you go. 
By the way, the good, we have something good. Ask me the question, the weekly question. The weekly kicker update. Terry Pluto's weekly kicker update. So Dustin Hopkins goes out there, and I believe it was 52 yards. I forgot exactly what it was, but right down the middle, which makes him 8 of 9, I believe. And then ran off the field, and that was it. That was it. No drama. No, nothing weird happened. Yeah, and he didn't get to (laughs) kick any extra points or anything else. So, All right, I just wanted to run through these PFF grades since I pulled them, Terry, for the offensive line. Ethan Posich, who's dealing with knee and chest injuries, 68.8. He played 24 snaps. Dewan Jones, 65.0. Joel Batonio, 63.8. Wyatt Teller, 59.7. Nick Harris, 51.3 in relief of Posich. And uh, Jedrick Wills Jr., 47.6. Again, these are PFF grades, and they are guidelines. It's not film. All right. So give give the the people listening, so what do those numbers mean? Like, what's good? So anything over 80 is like Pro Bowl level. Okay. Um, 70 to 80 is good. 60 to 70, I believe, is starter level. And anything below 60 is your – you could be easily – replaced by another player it's nothing special yeah so to have some guys around 51 47.6 not real good uh so they got to fix that and bill callahan's a great offensive line coach i'm sure he's already been working on it so uh i don't know anything else on the browns terry that's probably more than enough (laughs) yeah you know i've been thinking about nick chubb too and I, i would love to see the browns sometime this season come up with some kind of a play like the chubb special or something Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like some some tribute to him that would they could spring it at some important time of the season. So we'll see. We'll see if they do that. But just an idea I thought I would throw out in case they in case they do it. So Terry, we're going to talk about Cavs Media Day. I know you were out there yesterday, and I want to get your take on the Guardians' search for a new manager. So we'll be right back on Terry's Talking. We're back on Terry's Talking, the 100th episode, and uh, we will get to some fan responses. We've gotten dozens from people all over the world who are part of Terry Pluto Nation. So, Terry, you were out at Cavs Media Day on Monday. Uh, I guess the NBA is trying to do this where all the teams have Media Day on the same day because it was all over NBA Network yesterday. But um, I don't know. What did you see out there and what was kind of interesting things that people said or things that you noticed? Well, I mean, the, the headline that came out, it was Donovan Mitchell saying that uh, he wasn't going to sign an extension this year, which uh, I had writ- written going into over the weekend that, that it, it makes no sense for him to do it. I mean, even if I, if I were his agent and he wanted to stay, I'd say, no, you just wait another year. You could get possibly even more money. You won't lose any. And uh, it gives you another chance to look at the situation here. So just because he's passing up on this, rarely does a player with two years left to go in a contract sign a long-term extension like that. Um, so that was not a big deal. Um, the other interesting thing was uh, Evan Mobley was up there, and he was talking about his big goals. But he also said that how they are encouraging him. This is something that caught my attention to um, not only just get the rebound, but then push it up the court. And almost like, you know, do a mini Magic Johnson or big guy with the ball thing because they like his dribbling and passing skills. And J.B. Bickerstaff mentioned how uh, they want to, you know, then usage is the big thing now, which is basically giving the guy the ball more, uh, not just for him to uh, score, 
but they just feel he could be a good playmaker. Now that will be interesting to see if that happens because uh, who's getting, who's handling the ball over there for that team? Well, the two guards, I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> two of the best in the league. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, if you want usage, you got usage with both of yeah. them. So they're going to, so they're going to have to acquiesce a little bit or else once again, we, one of the, my favorite topics is they forget about the big guys. And, so I want to see what this looks like, but I believe they're doing this. Your thought. All right. Why do you think they're doing it? You go first. Why do I think they're trying to get Evan Mobley more involved? Um, because I think they see the potential there, and I think they see that he's kind of different and causes a lot of problems for other teams when he does have the ball in his hands. So I don't know. You know way more basketball than I do. What no, do you think? Well, you're on to it. And, but the other thing then from a business standpoint is – they cannot go out and get another superstar right now. This is it. The, their guy, their move is Donovan Mitchell. So for another star to show up on the team, it's the old internal development. He's only 22. And when they look at the other guys, you know, Garland, I think, could get a little better, but that's who Garland is. You know, he, he, I think he's a good guard, a B-plus guard. Um, and then uh, Jared Allen, I think, could get a little tougher, but – he is not going to be a dominant force. The one guy besides Donovan Mitchell who athletically and uh, Mobley has impressed me from day one with his poise and basketball acumen. I mean, and his brother's got it too. He just isn't as athletic. But boy, the Mobley family, that Papa Mobley who coaches at USC as an assistant, man, oh man, he drilled these kids into passing and defense even though they were on the AAU circuit, it's like they, they act like they went to, you know, uh, pick your favorite local high school program, you know, St. Edwards or one of those. Like they've been schooled the right way. You know, like Eric Flannery does with his kids, and there's a lot of other good high school coaches too. So that is the other reason. If you want a young man who's a forward to develop a, into a star, you have to be intentional about getting him the ball. Whereas – and part of it is to give him the freedom. When you get the rebound, just take it down there. So, so given that, what seemed – who looked different to you um, in terms of the way they were carrying themselves or the way that, that anybody's body changed a lot from what you saw? I, I think I was seeing Mobley has gained 10 pounds of muscle. Yeah. He's so, mean, he's so kind of tall and lean, it might be hard to notice that. Yeah, his but shoulder's a he, little broader. You know, that I didn't notice anything big. I really didn't. Uh, Chris Fedor would be better at that because, uh, you know, he's, I mean, we've had uh, at the Pine Dealer two, what I consider all-star basketball writers. And one was Brian Winhurst and then the other, who is my protege. Um, and now I go to Brian for stuff. He's at ESPN. And then, um, and then Chris. So he would be more likely to to have the eyeball of like who really put on some muscle or weight, but you also want to just see how it plays on the court. Now, the other interesting thing. So they were talking about their acquisitions, you know, Struess and um, Ty Jerome and uh, Niang. Okay. Because they needed to address shooting, which they did. But JB then said, I asked him about what kind of what happened in the New York series and this, and he said, well, really, we were playing against men. And sometimes it just physically overpowered us. 
all true. Then a question went in a different way. And then later on, uh, before I was able to ask the question about, so how do the free agent acquisitions address that problem? Because I don't see it other than Tristan Thompson coming in a little bit, which I'm good with Tristan coming off the bench. Um, by the way, Tristan still averaged a rebound every three minutes playing for the Lakers in the playoffs when he hadn't played the whole regular season. So um, they kind of dodged it. JB and Kobe went back and forth on how especially Struess brings kind of an edge to the team that they need and mental toughness, and they mentioned Tristan for that. But in terms of, I'm not talking, you know, sometimes fans want this enforcer. The modern NBA, you can't have a guy that just goes in there and can barely make a layup and just knock people around. You know, the the, the days of Rick Mahorn or something, are, are that's not the league. The guy has to have some skills. Uh, but the Cavs basically have to hope that their younger big men grow up on the boards and rebound better. And I'm, I'm going to dwell on this because the Knicks were really good at this team rebounding their guards. Josh Hart, I think averaged like six or seven rebounds a game from the guard spot. They went in there and crashed the boards. And I just didn't see that from the Cavs a lot. That's one of those things where it has to be everybody. Mm-hmm. Like it, you, you can't just say, well, Allen needs to rebound more. Mobley needs it's, it's gotta be a team effort where everybody's going down and making it a priority and you're right the Knicks did that in a huge way and you know Kobe's um, point was that and this is correct I think the Cavs allowed 97 points a game in the uh, in that series which was the lowest point total or whatever that anybody gave up in the playoffs Uh, they only scored 94 so uh, but then the Knicks gave up. I think they ran to Miami in the second round. I believe I forgot who it was, but they gave up far more than that. So his point was that all we had to do was average 100 points. You would have won. Correct. So that's what led to Niang to. And by the way, Ty Jerome's a very important player on this team. The guy they picked up too, because Rubio is still out with his um, trying to kind of put his emotional state together. Uh, I don't know the whole thing, but remember Ricky had that second. ACL operation and when he came back he just was not the same guy at all and I know it really was eating away at him and remember when they put him in the couple playoff games I mean he looked like just some kid out there they were just blown by him and and he's such a decorated long-term player on the international stage or whatever I'm, I'm sure that ate him up so they need another point guard to handle the ball some so this Ty Jerome who has some size I think he's 6'3 is an important part of that. Now, we'll see if Struess and Niang and, and et cetera bring a little edge to the team. Um, so that, that I found that that was the first time I heard anybody at the Cavs say, you know, we were kind of like kids being manhandled by these guys. Yeah. Well, two things, Terry, before we move on to the Guardians. But, like, number one, if you have shooters and the ball goes through the net, you don't need to rebound. So I guess they're thinking that's part of the equation. And the other thing is, like, you, there's an art to it. I mean, Dennis Rodman was a nobody when he came out of college and became one of the greatest rebounders of all time because he knew how to get the ball. And you're right about Tristan Thompson. Like, he might not play a lot, but he can teach these guys, 
hey, you know what? Here's how you need to, when this guy's here, you need to lean on him this way to get the rebound. Or here's how it comes off this way when it's, it's like there's little tricks that I think maybe these guys haven't been exposed to that he would know from having been around. Yes, absolutely. Because he's not a particularly good leaper. Um, local kid, Jerome Lane from Akron. Uh, played a lot of international ball and bounced around the NBA with one skill, rebounding. You know, Charles Barkley. Let's talk about a man. Jerome yeah. Lane was a man. Like he, he was a man. Yeah, you knew you were playing right. against him when you were done. Yes, you were. Now, um, I remember Wayne Embry telling me this, and he said generally, for example, a guy could come off the bench and average five points in fifteen minutes a game. So, in other words, basically a point every three minutes. But you don't necessarily get you know, that if he starts. In other words, sometimes starting will there. But in general, if a guy averages one rebound every three minutes, that was the example. If you play him more, you're still, like if Jerome Wayne, and you would see that periodically, he'd play 28 to 38 minutes, he'd get 10 to 12 rebounds. Uh, Chris Dudley was another guy that ran through Cleveland. These are older names and then played in the, in the league forever. He couldn't even make a free throw or anything else, but he was getting that rebound every three minutes. That's why I mentioned Tristan was very good at. So that seems to be something that you can project out. And so if the Cavs are looking around, that would be a, you know, basic analytics stuff to, to look at. And even keep that just in mind, whereas scoring doesn't necessarily reflect, uh, Playing a lot more minutes doesn't mean you'd be exactly as productive, but rebounding is. So that's why I was very encouraged with them getting Tristan because I looked; he was still at around that every rebound, every th- a rebound every three minutes. All right. Well, the Cavs are in training camp. They'll be starting their preseason games pretty soon. I believe it's Tuesday night, if I remember. Uh, and then they'll be going to the real thing pretty soon at the end of October. So it's uh, coming up fast. So, all right, Terry, you were at the Cavs media day Monday, and today, which is Tuesday, you were out at. The Guardians season wrap up press conference. I haven't really talked to you much about it because you just got home a while ago. Yeah. But uh, w- what happened there, and what what kind of struck you from that? Well, <laughs> they announced Terry Francona is officially out. <laughs> Stop the presses. Yeah, it's like <laughs> Frank Francona when doing his his side his uh you know his swan song over and over and giving out just great interviews the last six weeks. Uh, oh man, am I going to miss him? He just—he uh, uh, was remarkable. But the big news, and, and I think Paul Hoynes' story is up online, isn't it, about Sandy Almar? Um, which is, I think, I've mentioned on a podcast and written. Sandy doesn't want to do it. Doesn't want to man it. He declined to uh, be interviewed for it, and he will be on the staff regardless of who is the manager. Because uh, Sandy, he had his taste of managing in 2020 for quite a bit when. Uh, Tito was out and it was COVID time and that. And remember how Francona mentioned, when you're a manager, your phone never stops. It's the analytics guys. It's the trainers. It's the sports science guys. It's the front office. It's the player whose girlfriend left him and he's a basket. You know, it's all that stuff. So Sandy likes teaching catchers. Look what he did with, with Bo. Bo Naylor by the end of the year, was one of the better catchers in the American League. If you go from, like, the all-star break on, I'll have to look up the stats, uh, the way he was hitting, and that's how he proved defensively. I mean, he really, and that's Sandy. And Sandy, if you go back, Carlos Santana was a horrible catcher when he came to the 
uh, Guardians, and Sandy made him decent. Jan Gomes hardly caught it all, and he turned him into almost a borderline gold glove catcher. Roberto Perez was pretty good defensively, and he did win a gold glove as a catcher. Um, of course, that shows you how hopeless the Mike Zanino thing was. And now what he's doing with Network. He loves this. He loves catching. His other thing he loves is um, he's there with a stopwatch and all his data, and, and he uses analytics on stealing bases. That's why he's at first base. He's not just at first base to pass somebody on the butt and go two outs. They are working on the stolen bases and watching moves. Sandy is so smart, remember, because he was a catcher. So, therefore, he really learned about pitchers and motions and all that stuff. So, I get it. He's 57 years old. He just wants to do what he's good at. He does, He wants to be able to go home at night. Uh, I remember Francona said, when he managed, you know, again, it was all story time the last month. He goes, yeah, I was bench coach for, I think, his, I forgot who it was in Oakland, somebody he said. And, you know, we lose three to two and blow it in the bottom of the tenth. And, you know, I go and say, hey, Skip, you know, don't worry, man, tough game. And I, I feel for you. We'll get him again tomorrow. He goes, then I go home and eat a pizza and, you know, watch TV and go to bed. He says, then I realize, you know, when you're the big league manager, that game happens. And here come the phone calls. And Sandy learned that. He doesn't want the phone calls, and I understand that, you know. I want to do – and the other thing is only important in life, Michael, uh, for uh, anybody, is it's really hard to find something you're pretty good at. You get paid reasonably well, and you could do it for quite a while. Sandy's found that. And there's nothing wrong with saying this is where I am at this point in my life at the age of 57. Yeah, and there's a lot of guys you see in football, especially where they rise up the ranks and get a big-time college or NFL mm-hmm. job, and then when they lose that, they go back and coach high school, right? Because it's it's yeah. the purest form of of what they love to do, and that's kind of what Sandy has going. Is like he can work with the catchers and still, you know, be at first base and like you said, monitoring the the pickoff moves and the times times uh, time it takes to throw a second, all that yeah. stuff like that. So, and I remember the one year he was a bench coach. He didn't like it. He, he, I think, you know, because being bench coach with Frank Cohn is probably pretty intimidating, I would guess. You know, you could make suggestions, but I mean, you're standing there next to this guy that, uh, uh, I mean, he's going in the Hall of Fame. So, so that was the big thing. Um, they said they're going to interview somebody on the staff. Paul Hoynes and I were talking about that. We're guessing John McDonald, maybe DeMarla Hale. Um, I I believe that uh, the manager will come from outside. You know, I'm, I've mentioned Will Ven, Will uh, Will Venable, and so uh, did uh, uh, Paul Hoynes and, and some others. But there's other guys that they'll be looking at. And there was a report um, last night out of San Francisco that Giants coach Craig Albernaz is mm-hmm. going to interview. That the, the the Guardians have received permission from the Giants, so he'll be another name to watch. Yeah, there'll be a bunch of them that are floating out there, and. Um, We'll see who they come up with. I did ask uh, Antonetti this. I said, well, the two managers you hired on your watch, first was Manny Atka, and he had just been fired as manager of the Washington Nationals. And then the next was Tito. So I said, both times, I said, how much emphasis do you put on a guy who managed before? And, oh, we look at everybody. He just you know, dodged it. I get that. But that's something to keep an eye on. Is the previous MLB experience 
and whether they bring somebody in with that. Yeah. Yeah, because the both times – now, I, you could argue with Francona was a no-brainer or whatever, but Manny Atka had, had a terrible record in Washington. He interviewed great. And that that the final three in that were Tori Lavello, who is their AAA manager, who's not going on to do a nice job at Arizona, I may add. Uh, Bobby Valentine, as I said to them, I said we were kind of going over that, and I said this guy like dropped in from outer space. He didn't know like four guys on the team. It's like he he had managed in Japan. Yeah, he had been a big league manager before, but it was just a weird thing. And then Atka was the third. So let's see who they come up with. Now, back then, they had press conferences for those three. I doubt they're going to do that again. Uh, Shapiro liked doing that because if you think back about then, you know, that team was starting to uh, really lose fan interest back in 2008, 2009. All right. So that'll be happening. I I don't think it's going to take too long, right? Probably within a couple weeks, they'll they'll have someone hired. And, um, yeah, we'll see who it is. And I'm guessing it's going to be someone who – likes analytics and appreciates what they can do with it. And we'll see where it goes. So, I mean, my, my thing, and I'm trying to learn more about him. Um, Cause I always liked him from a distance. I mean, he's still technically manager of the pod race, although that whole thing has fallen apart there. And that's Bob Melvin, uh, three time manager of the year with Oakland, which had even less resources than Cleveland. One big there. Yeah. You know, well, he never won the world series. All that fine, whatever. Had to live with Billy Bean, so he he knows he knows the deal. He's sixty one. They may think maybe that's a little too old, but you know there would be your sort of Francona type, um, and I think he would view this. San Diego is a weird, weird organization. You know they put big money into their players. I really thought it was like they were sitting there doing a fantasy team, David. There's no thought to how they fit, just like you just bring them in. Uh, their GM is known for doing things like, you know, calling you first thing in the morning or whatever if you're a scout and saying to you, and what are you doing today to help the San Diego Padres win? <laughs> I mean, he's one of those guys. Uh, I read a profile of him in the uh, San Diego paper, and they said he, the first one was writing, it said, reminded him of some of these. Um, Silicon Valley, young upstart guys that built these businesses, you know, junior Elon Musk or whatever, you know, just on the eccentric. Move fast and break things, right? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> um, and, you know, and we're baseball. And then you turn around and all Francona talks about is relational and the people. And he said that would be the thing he would tell. I, I asked, you know, this, anybody manager i said would you tell him it's a it's a good job he goes now i wouldn't say it was good he said no i'm coming from my perspective because i would say it was wonderful and wonderful because we have limitations but the people here 11 years you know who lasts 11 years and he said i get to go out without being fired not many managers can say that yeah and i mean if you're bob melvin after what you've been through that would sound sign me up for that one, and yep. I would I would like to see that because I think Melvin would come in, and you probably would be able to keep Carl Willis. You know, Sandy's on the staff, and he may want to bring some of his own guys in. Um, Mike Chernoff, the GM, said that they were going to be careful on the coaching staff because they certainly want the the uh, the new uh, 
manager to have a say, but I think they want to keep several of these players. Uh, excuse me, several of their coaches. Coaches, yeah. Yeah, and Chris Valeka is kind of, and Paul Hines wrote about this during the season, kind of reinvented the Guardians hitting program from top to bottom. Like, what's going to happen to him? There's a lot of questions out there, which mm-hmm. is why I think they will move pretty quickly on this. So, all right, Terry, um, we have dozens of responses that we've gotten for um, where you asked fans to write in and say kind of where they live. Um, why they're a Cleveland sports fan, maybe some interesting stories. So we got a few minutes here. We're going to try and get to all of these by the time. Boy, it's going to take by a month or two. But show, show number two hundred. Yeah, by two hundred. So we're, we're going to do as many of these as we can. So I'll just I'll read uh, some of these that I pulled. That I'm just doing them in order that they came in. So uh, this one is from Dan Colbert from Portland, and he says, uh, "Hey Terry, I grew up in Shaker Heights and have remained a die-hard Cleveland sports fan for my entire 61 years, despite not mm. living in Northeast Ohio since I was 18." And for so, as for so many, wow. my love and knowledge of Cleveland sports was handed down from my father, who told great stories of the old teams and players, especially in baseball. He was born in 1931 and me in 1962. I've lived in many cities in every region of the U.S., and I've never observed the kind of devotion of Cleveland fans. My theory is that the Midwest father-son thing or mother-daughter thing is not as common most places as for Clevelanders. Terry asked why we stick with these teams. I really think it's the shared history that binds us to these teams. Keep in mind that no matter which political leanings we share as sports fans, love for Cleveland sports teams with a great many on the other side of the political divide, love all the teams, but I'm especially fond of the Guardians and Cavs, Love the podcast and the column. And then again, that's from Dan Colbert in Portland. So thanks for that, Dan. Um, any thoughts on that one, Terry? Go to one more and then we'll, we'll, we'll co- okay. compare and contrast. All right. Uh, this one is from Ryan Shannon. And he says, "Good." I think it's Ryan's a guy, but he says, Good morning, fellas. Just finished listening to Terry's talk. And I live in Charleston, South Carolina. Mm. I was born and raised in Middleburg Heights. I grew up reading Terry and even included several of his Faith in You books as presents to my son's godfather. The Browns and Guards are my favorite teams, but I really love hearing the old stories about my grandfather's play- favorite player, Rocky Calavito. Keep up the mm. great work. Thanks for that, Ryan. Um, I got one more. I'll lump one more in here. No, I'm stop here. We'll just do geography. That's what I wanted to hear. Portland, I'm assuming Oregon. Mm -hmm. And Charleston, South Carolina. You don't want to just drive that in one day. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I love about this. Okay, who's next? All right. This this is someone from Northeast Ohio. David F. He says, born and raised in Northeast Ohio, lived here almost all my life, been a follower, fan of the Guardians and Browns, except for the years they were absent for 70 years. Mm. And the Cavaliers since their beginning, I'm a loyal Northeast Ohio fan. And, well, let's go to this one. This is from Andy Getz. Andy's a longtime listener. And he says, You asked about people living abroad. Well, I am having an opportunity to do that this year. My wife and I lived in Malta from January to July, and now we are living in Cambridge, UK through mid-December before we return to Denver. I listen to each of the Terry's Talking podcasts, and I'm a regular viewer of Guardians games on MLB TV and Cavs games on NBA TV. On the latest podcast, Terry asked those of us living abroad to identify our favorite sports team and why we're gluttons for punishment. (laughs) Mm -hmm. My favorite teams, I've been following all of Cleveland teams since the mid-60s when I first started to get interested. It started with the Browns and the Indians, starting in 70, the Cavs. I feel that my allegiance to these teams has been relatively even, but I have to admit it's become very hard to be a Browns fan over these last 25 years. I've really admired what the Guardians have done over the last 12 years since Terry Francona has been the manager. 
Um, gluttons for punishment. I don't know the answer to this. It certainly didn't start out that way for me when I first got interested in the Browns. They were a winning organization in the mid-60s. Jim Brown, Leroy Kelly, and the expansion Cavaliers were woeful for several, several years before the miracle of Richfield. Um, he says, it remi- this reminds me of my years growing up and sharing the same feeling of support with so many other Clevelanders. It's a bond that connects us, and it's fun to relive the happy moments and somewhat therapeutic to commiserate over their miserable ones. Thanks for your podcast, and congratulations on 100 episodes. So there we go. <laughs> okay. Here where, where you mentioned the bond, and that's what I love. For, and I, I forgot which reader mentioned, uh, it, you know, blue state, red state, doesn't matter. Uh, I mean, you could get together. We could put. 10 people listen to this podcast together and ask their opinion of Baker Mayfield. And it will be not um, in any way uh, influenced by Joe Biden or Donald Trump. It'll be, what do you think of him? He got a raw deal. He didn't get a raw deal, whatever. Um, and that's, it's, we have become, I never thought I'd see they say this 15 or 20 years ago. Oftentimes sports talk is far more measured and intelligent than what you hear on normal talk shows. (laughs) I think because it cuts through the talking points and that kind of stuff. Yeah, we have our biases. And then you also have your connection. Think about that. So we have uh, Northeast Ohio. We have, where is Malta, by the way? It's over near Africa, I think. I think so. I don't know. I'm never going to be on Jeopardy. No. So anyway, uh, but now he's in the U.K., and then we have Portland and we have Charleston. And what? The bond of Northeast Ohio um, hangs on. If anything, those fans oftentimes from a distance are more avid because it reminds them of whatever it was who took them to the game and that that stuff. And they really miss it. I remember when I was um, going and, and covering uh, – in Greensboro, covering the ACC tournament, I was a rookie full-time writer there, and uh, all my friends were North Carolinians, and some like Duke, and some like you know Wake Forest or whatever, the Big Four. And I had no—I I love basketball, but I had no real allegiance to any of them. I kind of like North Carolina simply because I was a young kid, and Dean Smith was very nice to me a couple times. Because Smith would do his main press conference, and then he would just sort of stand around for five or ten minutes. He wanted to just come chat with them, and he was always very nice. Like sort of like North Carolina, but that was it. But I had no allegiance, you know. And even when I covered the Orioles in '79, and they went to the World Series, and all these hardcore Oriole fans—I mean, I got it. It was—it was a little bit, a uh, little like Cleveland, Baltimore was, you know, the, the the small spunky town. But it was nothing like when the uh, the Indians started their run in the mid nineties, nothing like that, how I felt. So, um, I could understand when you're far away. I mean, I, after I covered the Orioles in 79, I got offered a chance to go to the Pine dealer and, and do the tribe. And I jumped at it and the, the people in the ball, you go, you're nuts. They stink. And they're going to stink. Even <laughs> Earl Weaver goes, you know what you're doing? <laughs> So well, anyway, did. and I did, yeah, I did. I was going home, and and you know, and they, they do kind of nod about that. And you go, I was going home. Yeah, and people who don't have that connection to Cleveland or Northeast Ohio kind of don't get it. You're right. It's mm-hmm. 
it's something that you, the whole Cleveland versus the world thing or whatever you want to say. But uh, when you've been here, you kind of get it and you understand what it's about. And that's, that's an important thread that we're seeing through some of these emails already. And so uh, thanks for sending those in. We'll read some more next week. Uh, thank you for those who have sent into sports at cleveland.com. And we will do our best to get to all of these as we go along, as we continue on, hopefully toward episode number 200. Uh, I think that's it, Terry. I think we're done, right? We are done. All right. Uh, real quick, I wanted to mention, don't forget to sign up for Terry's weekly newsletter. You can go to cleveland.com slash newsletters, and it literally takes a minute. You just click a box, put in your email, and you're done. And you can get everything that Terry's done in a given week in your inbox every Monday. We'll catch you next week on Terry's Talking.